Hi, it's Bob Safian. You've been hearing me as the host of Rapid Response in this feed for a few years now with short newsy interviews alongside the deeper dives of Masters of Scale. Well, I'm excited to share that Rapid Response is expanding into its own feed. We'll be putting out shows twice a week, focusing on the urgent issues that business leaders are dealing with in real time. So search for Rapid Response in your podcast player and subscribe to make sure you get all our episodes. I'll see you on the other side. Today, we're at 3.3 million jobless, four to five times the highest level since 1982's Great Recession. Our nail studios, in the period of 12 days, going from 552 people down to seven, effectively down to zero revenue. All of these hourly workers in this country really represent a hero class. They're incredibly resilient. For many people, it's not a stimulus plan for them. This is a personal relief emergency plan. I see the spirit of those people who are out there as the heartbeat of our economy, who are helping each other. In the end, we are all just so very human. It's going to be our collective humanity that gets us uh, through this. I really, really believe that. Hi, listeners. It's Reed. We're continuing our special coverage today, and we're honored to have Tony Chan with us to think about the impact of the pandemic on hourly workers. Tony's the managing director of Cuball Capital in Boston, and he has a long-term orientation that's rare in the VC world. Cuball's portfolio is filled with purpose-driven companies, including several that are reckoning with a near elimination of their entire industry. Tony's asking questions that may resonate with many of you. How can you both protect your hourly workers and prepare them for an uncertain future? How do you plan for the long term when the daily keeps changing? This is Tony's second time on the show, and he's interviewed here by our editor-at-large, Bob Safian. Bob came to us after 11 years as editor-in-chief of Fast Company. I'm grateful to him for stepping in to do these interviews when my schedule won't allow it. We'll start the show in a moment. After a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. I woke up in the middle of the night because I had this nightmare that we were front page news that we've done the stupidest mistake of our life by making this pivot. <laughs> That's Aparna Saran, Chief Marketing Officer for Capital One Business. And she's recalling a moment from her previous position at Capital One when she was heading up a team designing a new business card. We had just made the decision to go all in and sunset the prior version of the product, which was honestly the cash cow for our business. When we made that decision within a senior leadership meeting, as someone who had been on the journey to build this out for five plus years, it was really exciting. But by the time the weekend hit, I started to feel the responsibility and the pressure. We are taking this big bet on something that I've built. Perhaps you've been there. You've made a pivotal decision and then panic sets in. How would Aparna calm her butterflies and steer her team through this pivot? We'll find out later in the show. It's all part of the Refocus Playbook, a special series where Capital One Business 
highlights stories of business owners and leaders using one of Reed's theories of entrepreneurship. Today's Playbook Insight, have multiple plan Bs. I'm Bob Safian, and I'm here with Tony Chan, the managing director of Q-Ball Capital in Boston. While many investors look for unicorns, uh, Tony has always had a different perspective. Instead of unicorns, he looks for what he calls sea turtles, which live a long time, which today, especially, we all have our ideas on. Tony is also a friend and supporter of Masters of Scale. He's appeared in previous episodes before with uh, terrific insights. And he's coming to us today remotely from his home in Massachusetts as I ask my questions from my home in New York. Tony, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Bob. Great to be here. These are strange and unprecedented times where everything is being disrupted in the business world and beyond. And I want to thank you for participating in this special series of episodes of Masters of Scale, where we're interviewing founders and operators and investors who are in the thick of things and have agreed to share their experiences in hopes of helping other leaders. New pressures are arising, new questions, new imperatives. I know that you are particularly concerned about the often unseen fragility of the most vulnerable players in our economy, in particular hourly workers who are being hit so hard by this crisis. And I, I want to delve into that with you in detail. But first, I want to start with a more overarching question. Um, you're known for being a long-term thinker. It's been your approach to investing, and it underscores so much of the rest of your philosophy. And the last time you were on Masters of Scale, you talked about the dangers of what you called short-termism and a microwave capitalism, very evocative phrase. But right now, everything feels short-term. And so I'm hoping you can explain your philosophy about long-termism versus short-termism, and then explain how it applies or is being tested in the environment that we have today that's rapidly shifting? Sure. Um, thanks for the question, Bob. I think on the concept of long-termism, it really came about from having been a founder and business builder over many years, and one that's had the both uh, good fortune and misfortune of seeing some of these incredible crises of this scale in the past from the dot-com crash to starting one of my first positions on the date of 9-11 to watching the incredible volatility through the 2008 financial crises, I can honestly say I haven't witnessed anything of this um, size and magnitude that has come with this swiftness and has impacted at least certain sets of the population disproportionately. But in terms of how that relates to long-termism, it really made us realize when we started Q-Ball that what we wanted to have was a very different model for venture investing. We wanted to have venture investing where we would invest in early growth concepts that might actually have the chance to turn into durable growth. Meaning that what if you imagine a world where your filter for investing was, might this last for 50 years? Just 50 years. How does that change your thinking? And the concept of microwave capitalism is that, look, most things coming out of the microwave don't taste that good. They tend to be better simmered or slow roasted. If you think of the most perfect salt made in the world, it just comes from, you know, seawater, a bit of sun, and a lot of time in, in its purest form. And for us, we believe that there are so many 
long-term opportunities and long-term issues that can be solved if we just did one thing, is change our time frame. And as humans, we are cognitively wired almost to be short-term. You know, this is why we have trouble with diets or quitting smoking, always believing that things can change the next day. Our political cycles, the way we invest, the fact that the vast majority of investing today is momentum trading that people are doing these, these last few days. If we actually just did some things based on the fundamentals, you might have a chance to solve for our bigger purpose, which is to place capital and be the best supporting actor to people and places which normally would not get it. There are numerous innovation deserts out there. There's numerous opportunities for more inclusionary innovation, but we have to change our time frame. We need patient capital to solve those things that might actually positively move the world forward while they disrupt categories. Right now, being patient is particularly hard. And do you find yourself sort of falling back on this idea of patience? Is it calming? Or is it something that in an environment like this, when things get crazy, whether now, 9-11, you know, 2008, do you suspend it or does it become even more important? Well, I, I think a mutual acquaintance, at least of ours, I think it was Bob Metcalf who had said, we tend to overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. And whether that's Metcalf's rule or whether it should be credited to another wise person, I think the concept and principle is right. I think that the value of stoicism or patience right now is a little bit of a calming force. But, you know, I'd be completely lying if I said that during these times you can't help but feel the short-term pain, the emotion, the roller coaster, and how you maintain perspective. I think this is true in operating companies. I think it's true in investing. A great friend of mine who actually co-led Tiananmen Square and has become one of the best value investors in this country, when I asked how he's become so successful, he reminded me that great investing is really about psychology, not about any smarts. You have to buy low and sell high. And it turns out that um, that's much harder to do so during this time, we have to keep one eye laser focused on defense because it is about survival, Bob. We have a number of retail services businesses that never could have imagined this level of catastrophic disruption to a business. Um, so we have to keep one eye laser focused on everything we can do to get to the other side. Whilst doing that, should you have sufficient capital and in many cases, many of us are becoming more limited on that, given the scale of this very severe COVID-19 crisis. You want to be scanning for opportunities to allow you to be best positioned for offense when we do get to the other side. Uh, because we have to remember that this too is not permanent and this too shall pass. But um, it's a hell of a time whilst it's going on. We'll be back in a moment after a word from our premier brand partner, Capital One Business. There was panic that set in that night because I didn't want to let people down. We're back with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was recalling the time she woke up in a cold sweat, terrified that the new product she had been working on might fail. So the next morning, she sat down and wrote an email. It was Sunday morning and I said, you know what? 
I'm going to just like share this with my peers. It was very emotional. It was like sort of a cry for help. Aparna realized that if the new product didn't take off, she needed a plan B, preferably multiple plan Bs. I'm inviting them to be the thought partners so that we are mitigating as much risk as possible and we have contingency plans in place as we make this move. You write something like this and your heart is pounding, should I send this? It was a super vulnerable moment for me. But then I was like, I'm going to just send this. Like, what's the worst that will happen? It can't be worse than being on the front page of the newspaper. So she held her breath and hit send. What happened next would surprise even her. We'll hear about that later in the show. It's all part of Capital One Business's Spotlight on Business Leaders, following Reed's Refocus Playbook. I want to have you take us through one of your portfolio companies in particular, uh, Mini Lux. I don't remember whether it was the first, the starting point of cue ball, but it started pretty early in, in, in cue balls, Rain and We're the only venture firm that started as a nail salon. Yeah, and it started very much with a long-term perspective, right? It's a chain of nail salons. And the, the case for going into nail salons was, as you say, it was a 50-year case? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a chain of nail salons as much as Starbucks is a chain of coffee shops. I think part of the inspiration we drew from when we tried to think of how can we use purpose design and technology to transform an entire industry that's been forgotten or neglected. We ended up picking nail care as our industry. We set that challenge out there to say, what could be Starbuckable? So we're trying to Starbuck the nail care industry. And I call it the nail care industry because it's not just the nail salons, it's the nail care products, the treatments, the actual protocols, all across that space that represent the most used beauty service in the world, but that's the least regulated. And anyone who's walked into a typical nail salon or perhaps read the seminal 2015 New York Times piece by Sarah Maslinier on the dangers of nail salons will notice that it's unimaginable that this type of industry can exist as it does in the 21st century with the level of toxicity, poor labor practices, lack of standards, and lack of hygiene. And so you, you saw this as an opportunity to create a better product and a better experience in this environment. And you've plowed a lot of money in it, right? I mean, tens of millions of dollars into growing this into a franchise that, right? And it was doing very well. Yeah. Yes, it's been doing very well. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're trying to build a platform brand that includes our, our, our nail studios that do nail services and waxing. We're offering a reimagined, uh, better, clean, ethical, safe set of nail polishes because most of the products out there have very high levels of toxicity, carcinogenic, and can cause neurological damage. By the way, many of the nail salons that have been reviewed by the CDC have already pre-COVID-19 up to 10% infection rate in uh, passing various infections like uh, nail fungus to hep C um, to other diseases. So for us, it was really important to fundamentally set a safe standard, not just for nail care, but you know, we don't really think about it. When you go to the barbershop and you see that mystery blue liquid called barbicide, that probably doesn't kill the stuff like COVID-19. You know, It's probably not that great. And so we really tried to have a vision that would elevate an entire industry um, through super hygiene, 
economic opportunity for inclusive class and community empowerment. And to your point, yes, it was going really well. Uh, we have a terrific CEO in Zoe Chrislock, who formerly ran Nike Canada. She has a terrific team that had been building this to double-digit growth. We were on a run rate of tens of millions, uh, far higher than any average nail studio. Oprah had just named us her favorite things and called us the Tesla polishes. But in the period of 12 days, we watched going from 552 people down to seven and um, effectively down to zero revenue. And, you know, the math and the fiduciary duty and the logic of having run businesses before is not the hard part. What's the hard part is really thinking about the lives you might be impacting and how you have to make sure that not just your business gets to the other side, but all of those 500 plus people, uh, not just in that business, but I would say across the states who are part of the economic engine on the ground floor that really make our country what it is. That's what I'm worried about. My heart's out there for not just that group, but in the nail care business, Bob, there are about 400,000 workers in this country. It is either the second uh, or third largest um, independent employer of vocational trade and uh, likely the largest of women and immigrant independent workers. So it's a very vulnerable class right now. And uh, we forget the social justice that we need to return to these people that are you know, purveyors of self-care. We often view them and call them nail technicians. I would never call them a nail technician. They're at minimum a nail designer and really a purveyor of self-care. And all of us have to think of those who have been caring for us for all these years, whether it's that waiter, that bartender, that nail designer, that waxing editor, that barber. Think about all those who just might be disproportionately affected. Minimally reach out, pick up the phone and say thank you. I mean, this has been personally distressing for you, has it not? I mean, yeah. I mean, this is a company that more than just funding myself and my partners co-founded it just over a decade ago. And when you try to build a business and you try to build one, especially that is purpose-driven, you never really sign up to let anyone go, even if it feels temporary. They're part of a family. It has been incredibly distressing, first and foremost, just trying to do the right thing quickly so that we can do everything possible to make sure we have something on the other side. But then just watching what so many of the people go through. You know, the media recently is just um, tooting a lot about the stimulus bill, uh, UI benefits, but we have to think of the reality of folks on the ground that are 15 standard deviations in terms of a different life and needs than what you and I are doing today and where you and I are and where even most of the listeners are, which is they're applying for unemployment in Texas right now with a site that's crashed. They've been without work for some weeks. And even for all our efforts of trying to lead with humanity, lead with love over fear, and paying people through last Friday, cashing out all their PTO, offering health benefits for 30 days, offering multilingual 
help to try to get them onboarded onto UI. The reality is that many people still haven't been able to even claim their unemployment. Today, we're at 3.3 million jobless, four to five times the highest level since 1982's Great Recession. The systems are crashing. The bills are out, and I applaud Congress for trying to get individuals and small businesses in. But it's going to be weeks, uh, if not months, before some of this really benefits the smaller businesses that make up 99% of this country's economy. And so despite this enormous stimulus package that's in place and the efforts that are underway, you're just not sure it's going to be enough to help certain parts of this population, that they're, they're going to be left out or left behind or left waiting. Yeah, let's be clear. I think for some folks that are rallying on Wall Street and going from minus XXX percent to plus 20% in a few days and applaud a fiscal stimulus plan, for many people, this is a personal relief emergency plan. It's not a stimulus plan for them. It's a relief plan. They are on standby needing this. And it goes well beyond our, our mini Lux group. We have another business, Roti, which has, uh, it's a Mediterranean grill food concept. We've have probably 700 people hourly that are out there in the same way. Most of America depends on businesses like that for their weekly livelihood. And we need to remember that. So I'm grateful that it's there. It's going to take time to get to people. It's a large amount to small businesses, but it's equally, you know, 500 billion plus to big businesses. And uh, the question becomes, how quickly can we get it to the people and can we get it to the right people in time? It sort of sounds like the business case for husbanding your cash flow and reducing your staff is almost like, it's obvious, like the business case, you have to do it, but the human case is much more complicated. Yeah. I mean, I think that you, you immediately, when this happened, you have to go into extreme, extreme cash conservation basis. As one of my CEOs reminded me during these times of crises, what we need more than ever is an attitude approach and leadership style of having love win over fear. And I think that pretty much sums up the situation. I, I think it's obvious that you need to do that so that you can hopefully provide a place on the other side. You need to play extreme defense, but it's absolutely heart-wrenching to, uh, to do this process. And you try to do it as compassionately as possible. You try to offer as much as you can, but it's gut-wrenching. And, and we have to remember that this is going to have some repercussions well beyond just a post-COVID-19 world. It's great that we have some of this new bill helping for some short term, but it, it saddens me overall that the entire retail services, small business landscape will have a reset. You may see as high as 30, 35% of businesses not make it through here. Wow. That's, um, it's very bracing. It's very bracing. So your advice for business people struggling with decisions about layoffs versus cash flow is you have to take care of the cash flow first so that you're there on the other side, I guess, to hire people back later. What kind of solutions do we need that we don't have for the most vulnerable at risk yeah. folks? 
Well, I think the best solution we have, let me just say this, the, the, the light that has lifted my spirit, including work that you're doing and the whole Wait What team, has been to really see this uh, ray of light through the cracks, which is the work of collective humanity. And um, people have jumped in to try to help. There's a variety of different NGOs. We, like others, have set up economic uh, resiliency funds to try to get people to uh, jump in and buy a gift card on our Minilux uh, website or you know, support through Venmo, give a virtual gratuity. And that's an important point, by the way, Bob. It's, um, it's not just the hourly worker. Um, it's also people with gratuity uh, that are depending on gratuity. Um, you know, in terms of what we need and what could have been done faster, I, I think it's useful to go through some, some basic math. If you think of, you know, I'm now abstracting to an average hourly worker and pick a number, say $40,000 a year that they might make, and assume that there's some tip element on that of 20%, some of that may or may not be reported, that takes them to $50,000 a year. If you're able to get through unemployment, that drops you down on your reportable wages down to $20,000 annualized salary. And whether you're single or a family or four or five, that's a tough run rate to go on. So I think that the first thing, the CARES package that's been proposed and getting $1,200 to people, we need to get that as fast as possible to people. We really need to get that as fast as possible. $1,200 is a massive amount of money for many people in this country. It could buy groceries for you know a while and get people over through the hump. We need to allow their banks to give them uh, forgivable short-term emergency loans. We need to allow the business owners like ourselves to get a level of emergency relief funding that we can continue to employ our people without all the contingencies out there. I mean, it's amazing that we can get a bill through this, but I don't know if you've looked at it, but imagine the average person trying to wade through 800 plus pages and just try clicking I, I encourage anyone on the Masters of Scale program to click on the Emergency Relief Fund loan application and look at all the boxes and liabilities. And even if you have a sophisticated MBA, you know, I would say that you would be somewhat challenged to say that this is like a quick and easy one-click process. So I think we need to make this easy. I think we need to triage and prioritize and Make sure those that are most vulnerable get it first. And we need to call upon our collective humanity. This is not going to get solved just top-down government. I think that I'm lifted mostly by the spirit of people, whether it's clients, friends, the American population, to rise to their occasion with courage and humanity like times like this. These folks, all of these hourly workers in this country really represent uh, a hero class um, to our country. And um, they're doing amazing things and they're incredibly resilient. And uh, we, we, we owe it to them to make sure they not only come out the other side, but they come out stronger. And uh, it's great that it, there's some short-term relief, but it's got to get there fast and it's got to last. It's got to last. Have you had outreach from employees or former employees from Minilux yeah. or some of the other firms that you run? What, what kind of, what are you hearing back from, from those folks? Are there any stories that you can share? 
Well, the first amazing thing, and it'll break your heart, is that um, so often is the case during these times that it's the people who have less that use these moments to find productive ways that they can apply their talents and with great courage and positive audacity do great things. So I learned this week from a group of mini Lux folks, people that are currently not with their jobs, who had done everything from volunteering to package, ship, put together notes to send to doctors at places like Mass General Hospital and Plano's Medical Center, critical uh, PPE supplies, um, specifically everything from medical grade disinfectant wipes because we have the most sterile, most hygienic nail care offering we believe in the world. They packaged this excess before studios had to close and delivered these offerings. And perhaps in the most moving case, was a woman who used the capabilities of her hands to hand sew several masks for doctors in this time of shortage. It's an incredible show of humanity that they have reached out with concern, with anxiety. Most calls have been about thank you, about thanking us for helping them get their unemployment benefits, helping them get a little bit extra We are on uh, calls with them frequently, weekly calls with the whole staff. I think that's another piece of advice for anyone going through this right now. You have to stay connected to your groups. They will want to come back, but don't lose that goodwill. People need human connection now more than ever. And the fact that we have social distancing makes it so, so much harder. So send out virtual oxytocin to everyone. People need it. Uh, We're desperate for it. So use caution, have compassion, but have courage and be inspired by these stories of what people are doing. That's what has um, lifted me, Bob. I, I just look at what they have done. And these are the stories from the field. As you talk about this, it in some ways, it's a bracing reminder in certain ways of how the the way our market system and our economy works and the priorities don't always accrue to the human side first in the way the systems are set up. I, I had a, a dialogue with Reed Hoffman a few days ago, and he, like you, is very frank that some businesses in this environment are just are they're gonna die. They're gonna they're gonna close down. And we were talking about as as an investor, sort of how does that change the calculation you're making with your own portfolio. You've supported all of these organizations. They're like your children. And suddenly you're in a triage mode where you have to decide like which ones of them you support so that they can in turn continue to support. How are you managing or grappling with sort of that kind of triage when your ideal is to be long-term focused, but you have to make those difficult choices also? Yeah, I think there was a letter from various representatives in Michigan that came out to begin to state the health public policy of what will happen when their ICU units and hospitals become overcrowded and you have to make life or death choices between who stays in the ICU, who stays on the ventilator, who stays with the doctors who can care for them. That impossible decision that you need to make. 
is one that really has no great answer. The only filter I would probably use on long-termism is to think about where the world might go. Because in making that choice, I think how we will end up having to make it is to at least project out over the next few years. And in this world of new, new normal that will come about, which one of these companies are going to be best suited for that new, new normal? And by that, that's not just a math equation. My hope in thinking about long-termism is that this is going to be a reminder and shock to the system that a level of new conscious consumerism might be a good thing. Shopping local, shopping ethically, shopping sustainably, supporting legitimate fair labor workers, places like Minilux trying to do economic development opportunity for them in safe, super hygienic modalities. I hope overall this conscious consumerism comes about and that's where where and how we're trying to think. Who are the representative companies that now have the best chance possible to hopefully take advantage of a reset world, not just in the negative spirit of having a, a smaller set of competition, but more in the positive spirit of the fact that we hopefully have greater permission to sell to a wider range and wider set of conscious consumers out there in the new, new normal. I'm an optimist, so I'm hoping. You, you are. You're, you're an optimist and you believe that we can tap into the best versions of ourselves. And listen, that is what, that is what we all hope can come through in the long run from once we get to the other side of the heat of this crisis, that as we restart and as we rebuild, it's going to be on all of us to make it happen. And what kind of a world do we want to be in and do we want to create? Same questions we always ask ourselves, but uh, becomes much more poignant and more central at, at times like this. Yeah, I think we're going to learn. I think, you know, as people become more educated, I mean, we're all talking about, you know, COVID-19 and novel virus. And I think as we become more educated that, you know, it's it's a world where it really must be us together. And we saw elements of this, you know, prior to COVID-19 as for the first time businesses started talking about the possibility that Milton Friedman wasn't completely right, that business is not solely for the purpose of profit, but for a collective stakeholder set, that, you know, this is why I believe in long-termism. I believe in long-termism when I see the spirit of those people who are out there as the heartbeat of our economy, who are helping each other, and a lot of people are trying to help them. And when I think about all the things that are possible, if we could just be more long-term and more educated to the benefits of that long-term, it, it gives me courage. But I don't know if I'll see it in my lifetime, Bob, but I'm, I'm a long-term thinker. So maybe, maybe, maybe my kids will benefit in the next generation. <laughs> these, are, these are stressful times. And, and as a leader, for you personally, what do you try to do to help manage your own stress? And and what sort of advice might you give to other business leaders and the rest of us for uh, for getting through these difficult days, these difficult choices, these difficult moments? It's a great question, Bob, on how we actually manage during these times of stress and um, often not just stress, but stress coupled with sadness. It makes me think back on the founding values that we put in place for my venture firm, Q-Ball. And we have a a 3P mantra of purpose, 
people and patience. You know, during these times of stress, perhaps the most important thing to center on is your purpose, reminding yourself of your North Star, um, that very reason that you started your venture. And uh, equally, it's absolutely critical to remind your people of this overarching purpose. This is especially true during times of crises. The second P on people is that uh, during these uh, moments, you need more than ever those that you trust and love around you. First and foremost, to maintain an even keel, it's absolutely wise to get diverse perspectives. You want to have your sounding board. You want your trusted counsel. So get more input and delegate uh, wherever you can. But people are equally needed to help you with your vulnerability. These are times when we have to find those moments where we can go to our confidants, uh, whether they're at home or at work, and let it go a little bit. It's okay to cry. It's okay to shed your vulnerability. That's what people are for, to help offer you the peer support, to offer you the virtual oxytocin that we all need uh, during these times. And as I think of the theme of people, try to think of those that you love and respect the most uh, who have managed during these times of crises. And I certainly try to imagine some of those people before critical communications or critical meetings or critical discussions and channel their spirit towards uh, that upcoming conversation that I need to have. And finally, patience. Just remember, uh, this too shall pass. And we all have to try to be stronger on the other side, but remembering that it's about the long term that's uh, most critical and being patient and stoic will help you think uh, a little bit more clearly. And I guess lastly, as I go back to that theme of purpose that uh, I just started with, uh, I'm reminded of the purpose behind why we started Minilux. Yes, it's a nail care brand and yes, it's a, um, a set of nail care studios across the country. But the real underlying purpose of why we started Minilux was to create and celebrate many moments of self-care. And during these times of stress and challenge, we absolutely need to find that balance and remember the small things, um, taking a short walk, uh, remembering to breathe, not just when your watch tells you to do so. And if I'm permitted to give a shout out to one of Wait What's properties, um, listening to content that is reflective, like meditative story. Whatever gives you self-care, whether it's um, meditating, yoga, doing your nails, whatever makes you feel a little more like you, that's what you have to try to do a little bit each day. For me today, it was uh, just waking up thinking about what I want to wear. As much as I love having worn sweats over the last two weeks at home, I decided that I should start today by wearing a tie and a new shirt. As my kids asked me what meeting I had, I said, I had a really important meeting coming up that day. They said, which one? I said, well, it's meeting this new day with its new challenges. You know, just making an effort to do something that makes you feel more ready, as small and as silly as that might sound, is critical. We need balance and um, just finding joy in those small things from the humanity we see from people singing on those terraces of Italy to uh, our own group putting together our, our song lists to the virtual happy hours that are emerging across the social sphere. These small things 
keep us connected. They remind us who we are. And they remind us that in the end, we are all just so very human. And uh, it's going to be our collective humanity that gets us uh, through this. I really, really believe that. So lots of love to everyone out there. Let's win this. We're in it together. And uh, we'll get to the other side together. Well, Tony, I... uh... Listen, sometimes tears are warranted, yeah. as you say, but channeling a spirit of, of optimism and embracing a new day and recognizing the gifts that we have and the gifts that we can give each other, um, are, I think are great, are great lessons for us to take away from all this. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. We're wishing you luck. Thanks, Bob. And now a final word from our brand partner, Capital One Business. Throughout the day, text messages and emails kept pouring in. Whatever you need, just let us know. We're back one more time with Aparna Saran of Capital One Business. She was telling us about a Sunday morning email she fired off in a moment of panic. Minutes later, her inbox was overflowing. And the support she found wasn't just emotional, it was practical. We talked about detailed contingency plans and we created our go-to-market strategy before we are in full rollout mode, we are in stage gates so that we could test and quickly learn and iterate. And within a matter of like six months, as we were rolling things out channel by channel, those stage gates would allow us to pivot if we saw something that we didn't like. That day, Aparna learned a lesson that stayed with her. Having multiple plan Bs doesn't just expand your options. It gives you new opportunities. The best way to pivot is actually open doors for thoughtful conversations because humility in knowing that you actually don't know everything as well as the empathy in knowing that disruption is always drastic and abrupt helps you go through that pivot with other people in a very different way. Capital One Business is proud to support entrepreneurs and leaders working to scale their impact from Fortune 500s to first-time business owners. For more resources to help drive your business forward, visit CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. That's CapitalOne.com slash Business Hub. Masters of Scale Rapid Response is a Wait What original. The show is recorded remotely using sanitized audio gear. It's hosted by me, Bob Safian, Masters of Scale's editor-at-large, and Masters of Scale host, Reed Hoffman. Our executive producers are June Cohen and Darren Triff. Our supervising producer is Jay Punjabi. Our producer is Jordan McLeod. Scripts by Christina Gonzalez. Original music and sound design by Ryan Holiday and Daniel Nissenbaum. Audio editing by Keith J. Nelson and Lena Sillison. Mixing and mastering by Brian Pugh. Special thanks to Emily McManus, Sarah Sandman, Adam Heiner, Kelsey Capitano, Tim Cronin, Charlie Manessis, and Saida Sapieva. Visit mastersofscale.com slash rapid response to find the transcript for this episode and be sure to subscribe to our email newsletter.